Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. My guest today, he does not know the impact that he's had on my life. He couldn't know. Um, and uh, But uh, my guest is Paul Oster, who uh, has just written a really special book on the author Stephen Crane called uh, Burning Boy. And uh, But Paul, man... Um, I catalog, I'm one of these annoying people who kind of makes lists and catalogs things. And I always uh, know my favorite rock band of any period. And I know my favorite writer of any period. And before I became a writer, you were pretty much the main, you were pretty much the person I read in my twenties to figure out how to become a writer. Wow. Well, I don't know what to say. Um, I hope I didn't lead you too far astray. You know, you, of course, you fucking did, but it was, uh, you know, uh, worth it. And I, I say that with no, um, really no hyperbole. I was thinking about it and talking to my wife, Amy, who's also a novelist uh, and, and filmmaker. Um, and, you know, uh, we've actually had on our front door the whole time we were raising our kids, Amy had put in uh, your quote about what might fix this monstrosity of a life. Uh, on our door uh, for a really long time, like for 15 years when our kids were little. Like so, the, what yeah. did I say? What, what, I, what I, I can tell you, it's beautiful what 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 you said. Um, and this was really as our children were uh, raised, and it's uh, in that the world is monstrous, in that the world can lead a man to nothing but despair, and a despair so complete, so resolute that nothing can open the door of this prison, which is hopelessness. A peers through the bars of his cell and finds only one thought. And then that brings him consolation. What you talk about is young people in general, not just your own, but yes. you talk about how any child in the world uh, must force you to be in the present. And it was this notion of living in the present that resonated for, for Amy and literally was on our front door, on the inside of our front door for 15 years. So it was Incredible. a great reminder, uh, yeah. you know, to try to like live uh i i wrote moment. that i was the invention of solitude that i, I yes. it's my first full prose book uh in my early early 30s i wrote that how interesting yeah now i'm 75 it's amazing and i'm i'm 50 <laughs> i'm 55 and you know we got married when we were 25 so like it's a a, a long journey we've all yes. been on together and, and this is uh let's start on the crane book and then um we can go deeper, but but I, I really do, um, in all the books you wrote, probably up to Book of Illusions, unfortunately for you, I'm like encyclopedic about it because I read those books many times and those all those books kind of did awaken me to what was possible, even though I chose to write movies, but they did awaken me to like what was possible. So thanks, yeah. dude. Um, all right, so this book, I think, really fits in to your work because it's filled as so much of your work is with giant what if questions. It's, you seem really consumed as an artist with the, the question of what if things had gone a slightly different way? Um, you know, and this book, there are so many what ifs about Crane and his life. And so is that something you recognize as a theme that, that, that you're drawn to? Well, possibly, possibly. Um, now, I, I, I just, I'll tell you the circumstances of how I wound up writing this enormous biography study slash study of, of, of a writer 
his life and his work, because I never would have predicted that I would have done such a thing. I mean, absolutely unpredictable, you know, what happens to us. In any case, it was uh, after I'd finished writing 4321, my previous novel, um, the enormous 4321, which I wrote in a kind of feverish frenzy over a very short period for something so long, three and a half years. Like a 900-page book, yeah. Yes, yes. And I think it was an 1,100-page typescript, something (laughs) like that. Um, It was enormous, and I never had done anything of that magnitude. I was was absolutely exhausted when I was finished. And um, for the first time in my writing life, I told myself I have to take a long pause. I can't even begin to think about writing anything more for now and for the months ahead, maybe even a whole year. I I didn't know how long it would take me to recover. So what I did, I spent my time reading books, especially revisiting old books that I had wanted to go back to and discovering new things. It was a rather wonderful period, I have to say. Also, watching films and revisiting old beloved films, and again, discovering new ones. Um, In the course of all this reading, uh, one day I got up from my chair and I looked at the bookshelf. I said, what am I going to read next? Yeah. And there was my Viking portable edition of Stephen Crane's work that I had had since, oh, I don't know, since either high school or early college days. Um, And I thought to myself, you know, I haven't Red Crane in so many years, I want to revisit him. And the first thing I opened to was a novella uh, written in 1897 called The Monster. I'd never even heard of this. I didn't know about it. And I found it a masterpiece, an extraordinary bit of work, which is about, among other things, small town prejudices and racism. Uh, the central figure, or one of the two central figures, is a black man. Um, it's an extraordinary book. And I thought, oh, what have I missed? So I read everything in that collection, which was about 500 pages. And I, I started buzzing with enthusiasm over the sentences that this boy could write. He died at 28 years old. Yeah. He produced a mass of, of stories, poems, novels, novellas, reportage. Um, and, um, I, I graduated to the library of America edition, you know, 1350 pages. I read everything. I said, oh, oh no, he, no one understands how great this writer is. And I then dedicated myself to the project with nothing ulterior in mind to reading all of Crane. So I bought the 10 volume collected works. It's more than 3000 pages. Can you imagine 3,000 pages published by someone who who died at 28? Anyway, I read it all. And as I was reading it, I thought, I want to write about him. I need to say something about him. And I thought, a nice little book, a tiny little thing. That's funny. Express my my admiration for this writer. What listeners don't know is this book is 700 pages. (laughs) It's even 800 pages. (laughs) Yeah, sure. The print isn't that big either. So... So this was a, a thousand page typescript by typewriter. Um, incredible uh, amount of work went into this. But I started reading about his life. 
I started reading his letters and, 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 uh, uh, and his life was so extraordinarily interesting too. Uh, one adventure after another, one crazy random thing colliding with another. Uh, you talk about the music of chance. I mean, Crane yes. lived it. Um, so the music of chance, which is a, a, an important Paul Oster uh, novel. As someone who's written a lot about poker, it was one of the first poker you know, novels that had poker running through it that yeah, uh, yeah. I'd ever read. So, yeah. Oh, good, yes. good, good. So in any case, uh, the, uh, the book uh, I started writing and it, of course, grew and grew. But I was so absorbed in it. I was never bored for a second. And I did a lot of research. I really did my due diligence. Um, and, as, and here I'm getting back to what you started with. As I was writing it, I kept asking myself, why am I doing this? What, yeah. what has possessed me to write this book? Uh, so unlike anything I've ever attempted before, I've written criticism, I've written essays about writers, but nothing on this scale. And, um, and then I suddenly said to myself, now I have to preface this by saying 4321 is a book about a boy who grows into a young man named Archie Ferguson. But I tell his story in four ways. There are four variations on the same story, which are set up in rotation among, among each one another. And uh, I said to myself, actually, I think what it is, is that Crane is Ferguson five, uh, nice. this young boy on fire. And, um, and just coincidentally, I mean, it means nothing, but I was born in Newark, New Jersey. My Fergusons are born in Newark, New Jersey. And so was Stephen Crane. This is very interesting, but not really. Um, it's just one of those random hazardous haphazard things. So, so that's how, that's how the book got written. Um, I, I felt that my, my one real purpose in doing this book was to get people interested in Crane again, get people to start reading him again and give him his proper place in American literature, which I think is a large one. I really think he he belongs on the on the Mount Rushmore. I, I mean, American I mean it, it feels. I mean, you say more than once in the in the course of the book, um, you credit him with inventing. I mean, you you reference other people who said it fifty years after his death, but you do more than once, maybe five times, say you think he invented the the modern novel or the modern way yes. of writing. Uh, he changed. Uh, he changed the way we think about telling fictional stories. I think so. And I, I believe he is the one, as I said at one point, he's the one who opened the door onto what happened next in the 20th century. He died in the early months of 1900. That, that's when his life ended. And then there was uh, a flood of uh, a new sensibility that came pouring through after, after Crane reaching its flower, I suppose, by the 1920s. Um, I mean, he had a tremendous influence on Hemingway, huge. Mencken, uh, Sherwood Anderson, all, all the people of that of that early modernist. Uh, it's it's funny, when I went, gone back and I've read some Crane, I had only ever read Red Badge of Courage. Yeah. Um, certainly like the Frank way, I mean, you talk about this, the, the, the Frank way that he wrote 
the patois of the the people you know who lived um, in difficult circumstances. And 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 I loved uh, the way he talked about the critical response at the time and the misreadings of him and 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 all that that stuff. And the textual analysis was great. But I did also find, and I do want to just press on this a little bit because. You know, why are artists drawn to whatever their subjects are, either fictionally or when they're writing nonfiction? And and I like when I look at Life on the Wire, which you translated, but one feels you in that in a very deep way. Um, Mr. Vertigo, Book of Illusions, yeah, uh, and 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 Moon Palace. Uh, when I look at those books and this book, I see a lot of commonality. Like. So could you just talk a little bit, to the extent that you can, about what draws you to a certain kind of artist who will sacrifice all measure of mental and physical comfort for their work? Because you've written about Crane, not just in 4321, you've written about Crane like your whole career on a certain, <laughs> in a certain, I could point to these, you know, you can point to these artists throughout your books, these thinkers, these writers, and believe me, we're gonna get to Leviathan, which is to me, what's funny to me watching you do this is, I've always wanted to write about Leviathan in the same way. Uh, when we once met you and I at a screening, I told you that uh, if you don't make the movie out of Leviathan, I have to make it someday. And uh, because to me, that's the most important book. It predicted everything, but we'll get to that in a second. I mean, I can't imagine what it is walking around being you having written that book that literally predicted the next 25 years. Uh, which I see you nodding and you know you did it. And no, I'm, um, I'm kind of shrugging. I don't, I don't know what to say. I, I'm not. Yeah, but I mean, if you, I mean, you, invent, you, you were aware, you started talking about the parasocial relationship between uh, a content creator and the receiver of that and as a, an issue like 20 years before the world started talking about it. But, but for a minute, let's just go to um, those books I mentioned and this idea, I think, that you are drawn to a certain kind of artist who will sacrifice a lot of their mental and physical comfort for their work. And like, what is it that you think that, that draws you to this? Why does that story matter so much to you? Well, I'll tell you, the first thing that I wrote uh, that was worth publishing was, um, I was uh, 23 um, and it was actually uh, the, uh, a chapter in my MA thesis that I wrote at Columbia. I got a BA at Columbia. And not knowing what to do after that, I I I, I got a fellowship and I I did an, a one year of graduate school and then quit. But I got an MA, and this MA was entitled "The Art of Hunger," and yes. I was very interested in the novel by Knut Hampson, written in 1890, right around yes. the time that Crane wrote Maggie. Which you mention in this book, you mention it more than once in this yeah. book in a footnote, and then yeah, Hunger, Hunger, very important book. Some people call it the first modern European novel. Um, you know, is about a writer starving in Oslo. Um, and uh, but why? Why? Why is he punishing himself? I mean, yes. it's really one of the great uh, modernist, early modernist works. Um, I suppose what I'm truly interested in is art that is not just made with the head, but made with the body, so that your whole self is involved in this experience. Um, because I believe. The, the art of writing and the art of reading uh, are all involved with the body as well as the mind. Um, and you have to be attuned to it. But I, I believe that the true meanings of sentences and paragraphs and books is contained 
in the rhythm of the words, the music that one is hearing. And that yes. is something physical. It is in your body and you feel it, but you can't articulate it. And um, all the artists that I care most about are able to, first of all, yes, they're smart, but they're also open and, 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 and feeling the vibrations of the universe coursing through them. And um, it's, it's, it's something that you don't go out and look for. It's something you're, I suppose, endowed with. It's a, it's a way of being in the world. It's a stance. And um, I've, been, I've been very um, fascinated by different questions about self-denial, uh, self-abnegation in a way, in order to do this kind of thing. It takes a great rigor to do this and, and tremendous and fierce honesty with oneself. Uh, you can't cheat, you can't lie, and uh, you have to give maximum effort at all times in order to make this kind of art. So you bring up Philippe Petit, that's what you're talking about. No, the film was called uh, um, Man on Wire, but the yes. book I translated was called On the High Wire. On the High Wire, and yes. This was a treatise that Philippe wrote when he was in his early 20s. It's a kind of, um, well, it's a nonsensical book in that you can't teach anyone through a book how to walk the high wire. But he does a, a wonderfully poetic job of explaining what goes into uh, training oneself how to do this absolutely extraordinary thing that he does. Um, I, have, I, I happen to meet Philippe, I mean, or see Philippe for the first time when I was a kid in my, you know, early twenties, I was living in Paris yes. and uh, it's 1972, I believe. And I'm walking down the Boulevard Montparnasse and I see this juggler on a unicycle in white face with a black silk hat and a black turtleneck and black pants. And he's juggling on this unicycle. Um, it was exquisite. The, the juggling was uh, sublime. And I, I'd never quite seen any human being so focused and, and taking such joy in, in, in performing in front of a crowd that he purposely made silent. He just wouldn't let anyone talk. Um, so I, I, was, I was quite impressed. Some weeks later, might have been 1971, I'm sorry, 71. And some weeks later, I was walking home and along the Seine very late at night. And I saw the juggler from the Boulevard Montparnasse with ropes over his shoulder, with a bunch of other young people walking briskly in the direction of what? I didn't know. Well, that morning, Philippe walked between the towers of the Notre Dame Cathedral. And I, I was so astonished by this, you know, that he should do this, one of his clandestine walks. Um, and, um, and it's funny, when I moved back to New York, it was uh, the summer of 1974. I think about a week after I moved back, Philippe walked between the towers of the World Trade Center. Right. They, so I felt that somehow we were connected. And... And I admired him so much, uh, not just for his bravery and his insanity to do this kind of thing, but for the, uh, the 
art of it, the, the, the beauty of what he could do on the wire as well. Uh, because, you know, it's you're risking death with every second you're up there. But at the same time, his art consists of making you not think about that and making you appreciate the, the performance that he's doing. Well, the book is, I mean, you said rigor. I, I used to, so before the movie came out, uh, the documentary, for years, I would give away copies of On the High Wire to people who told me they wanted to become writers or they <laughs> wanted to become artists because, you know, it is, um, uh, it, it lays out what is required of yes. you. And the it, it literally lays out, if you want to be an artist, if that, if you have that dream in a way, I mean, you know, Philippe's story, the being in whatever, I'm trying to remember, like the doctor's office, reading that magazine and deciding I'm going to go do this crazy yes. thing. I mean, I haven't read the book in 20 years, but I remember like very sure. well the, the book. Sure. Uh, but I used to give away copies of the book. But then the yeah. movie came out and like it was so accessible to everybody. I, it, it no longer was like um, as- A secret, a uh, secret that- Yeah, it have. wasn't like a secret but, but key. Here's the thing. So I met Philippe. Uh, I, uh, it, it was 1980. So, and I was still in New York and he was living here too. And, um, uh, I met him at a party and I, I was very happy to meet him. And I, I introduced myself That's and amazing. We started talking. And he said, you know, I, I, I've, I've had, I've wrote this book and it's been rejected by 27 publishers. No one will do it. The best. And I said, don't worry, don't worry. I'll translate it into English and get it published for you. And I did it. I did it. And we've been, we've been friends ever since. I mean, really good friends. And, uh, and I, I, I treasure the friendship. I mean, Philippe is nuts. I mean, he's, he's, he's on another planet from anybody I've ever known. And he can be very difficult too, but I admire him tremendously. And, uh, and he's, you know, when the chips are down, he's a very good friend also. So. Well, that's good to know. I mean, that's very good to know. Yeah. Uh, and I do recommend that book to anyone listening. It is, as far as a primer, about what it takes to commit to doing the impossible uh, in whatever your uh, art is. It's been reprinted now, um, republished by New Directions uh, a couple of years ago. So there's a nice, unillustrated, beautiful little pocket edition of uh, yeah the, i love the paperback that i had yeah, i I, yeah. I mean i still have it at, at, yeah. at home but but so that's that's philippe petite but you also deal with this stuff in like you know moon even books as early as moon palace yes. you're dealing with these questions of uh you know like like in moon palace you know you're you're dealing with hunger poverty and the comfort of books like what they nourish so like why are these things necessary in your mind in, in moon palace you know you're literally someone's using these books as furniture then using them to nourish himself then getting selling them so that he can live emptied out i mean you know and you can imagine in my early 20s the impact that that story has on everyone who has that kind of sort of romantic idea about what they'd sacrifice to try to do this shit but what what is it do you think that brings you back? Because you are with Crane, return to the exact same themes, man. Yeah, well, he he was he starved in New York uh, yeah. during the hard years of eighteen ninety three panic, and um, yeah, and and other depressions. Uh, always struggling financially. Listen, 
If I could give you the answer to these questions, I probably wouldn't have to write the books I do. But I guess what I'm trying to ask is, did you, I don't know did, why. were you aware, but what I want to ask you is, because I'm like, of course you do these things long enough, your themes are your themes for anyone who does yeah. this stuff. But were you aware of the resonances that existed in Crane's existence and the existence of these fictional constructs that you created? Meaning, did that land for you in, 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 in some way as, a, as to why you're drawn to it? Well, you know, to, I, I mean, to, to be quite honest, uh, my personality, my life, my preoccupations other than writing and an obsession with baseball, which he and I shared, um, very different. I, I, I'm not at all like Stephen Crane. And yet I went through many of the same things as a young writer that he went through. The uh, intense poverty. I mean, I really was broke for years. Where really, were you? I mean, I've, just for people to know, like, so where, describe that I was, situation. I was, I was mostly in New York, New York. Um, but I was, I was really scrambling. Um, and, um, and then uh, rejections, rejections by publishers. I mean, my first novel, City of Glass, which is the first panel in the New York trilogy, um, was rejected by 17 New York publishers. It was uh, quite something. Um, and I nevertheless just forged on through the rejections and wrote the next little panel of the trilogy and then was well launched on the final and third, third and final when I finally got an offer from a publisher, not in New York, but in Los Angeles to publish City of Glass. So the New York trilogy was published outside of New York. It's kind of funny. Yeah, I of remember course. My, my advances for the three books were $100, $100, and $100. That's how I got started. Which, by the way, folks, it wasn't that long. That just translates into probably like 225 bucks now. I mean, it's yeah. still, it yeah. wasn't a glorious yeah. advance. But, but now that, that those books have been translated into 45 languages. So what do these editors know? And, and also that whole experience gave me a great skepticism about the wisdom of the publishing world and the, you know, of editors and the kind of decisions they make. Um, uh, it's, it's kept me uh, comfortably on the outside of this whole business. And I think it's a good place to be not in it, but just outside on the margins. Well, did it, did it occur to you that way? You know, of course, I, I wouldn't say ironically, but interestingly, when the New York trilogy was published in full, you were credited with ushering in um, this modern approach to uh, like literary, you know, literary uh, reductionist, literary um, crime fiction, right? And so when that happened and, and you were, these books that were rejected were lauded in the way that they were. I mean, you really did go become for a, this period of time, like, you know, this white hot figure. Um, and you talk about when Crane got famous and the effect uh, that happened on him. And, and again, I, after being rejected and told uh, his work was inappropriate or that people wouldn't respond to it or that, you know, uh, moral. I mean, people rejected him in moralizing ways, too. Yes, yes. And again, I, I wonder about 
the if you felt a kinship to him as you were writing about those periods i did all the all the indignities that he suffered uh in one way or another i had suffered them as well so i felt great great sympathy for him i think also it it allowed me to understand him now the funny thing about writing a biography is this is that it um in order to do it well and it took me a while to really penetrate him and 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 to get a real feel for him in the way that i have a feel for my fictional characters in my novels i mean these people are not just little stick figures to me they're they're fully alive they they yes. exist they exist uh i just can't touch them but they're there and uh after a while i was inhabiting crane uh in a similar way to the way i inhabit my my characters in my novels. So there is a kind of emotional uh overlap in in the two in the two activities even though uh writing this stuff you can't make anything up. <laughs> you know that's that's right. That's the, you really have to No, and in fact you try to puncture certain myths about him and you realize that certain things were written about him that turned out not to be not to be true and you right, try right. to compare. I mean I love because you write about memory so much in your work in your fictional work, I loved when you would point out that different people told different versions, like of the, which suit he, even, and I, I loved the detail, uh, which yeah. suit he wore to a certain thing. And two different people claimed, I gathered, I didn't go back to the source material, but according to you, two different people claimed they lent him a suit for this night. Exactly, they, exactly right. And, and you know, who knows, maybe the one of them lent the jacket and the other lent the pants for all we know. Or who they knows? remember two different nights, right? Like, exactly. like he could have borrowed exactly. suits in times because there are letters, I, and I was so sad exactly. that the one letter was lost when the guy wrote him and 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 did say that he, he loved his work. And that one letter you said was not found and we had to kind of figure it out. And I I, I was made sad by that. I want to go back to this thing, um, you know, and I'm sure when you look at your young work, uh, I don't know how you feel about certain aspects of it, but, you know, the metaphor of the books in Moon Palace and, and if I mention one of these books, people listen to this podcast for years. This is, you know, um, really careful about what books I suggest to read. But these are all books you should go read. They all, they're all still published. They're all still really findable books. Um, but like, books seem to matter so much to many of your characters. And movies matter too, of course, to them. Uh, but books provide a kind of nourishment and comfort when nourishment and comfort is unavailable elsewhere to your characters. And I wonder if you could just, and you know, and to Crane too, I, I mean, I can connect it through to why that you were obsessed enough to write this, you know, thousand page manuscript. So what is your relationship to books? Has it changed? Do you still feel the way you felt when you wrote Moon Palace about the value of of the physical book because that but that, that thing's not just about the imagined reality it's about physical books yeah no i i haven't changed i i've always felt this great love of books um and um you know i, I don't fetishize books in that i don't collect first editions i i'm not obsessed with that kind of thing but i uh, but i don't know comfort is not the word i would use um i i i think um Good. 
what you're doing when you're reading a book that is a good book, a book you admire and enjoy reading uh, and feel gripped by, is that you're in a kind of dialogue with the author and you, you're engaging with that person um, in, 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 a, in a relationship that is unique on the, on the earth, I think. Because I've said it and I believe it truly and deeply that the novel or the short story, fiction in general, is the one place in the universe where two strangers can meet on terms of absolute intimacy. It's a remarkable thing, you know, to understand that the person writing the book is a human being in the same way you are and that you can actually... Uh, even across cultures, across centuries, be in communication with this other, the spirit of this other person through language. Just a lot of marks on a page, just little signs. What an extraordinary thing that is. And when you, when you uh, read a book, you're living in a state of silence. Um, you're, you're, you're not saying anything, you're listening. And that voice is in your head. And during the time you're reading, that voice is the only thing you're paying attention to, the only thing you can hear. And you have to, if you, in order to appreciate a work of literature, you have to give yourself up to it. As my brilliant wife, Siri Hustet, also a novelist, also an essayist of great repute, said in one of her essays, art is like sex. If you don't relax, you're not going to enjoy it. And I think it's really a wonderful, wonderful statement because it's true. It's true. Um, but I think uh, books challenge us. They shake us up. They disturb us. They, they haunt us. They, they, can, they can do all kinds of mysterious things to us. And they can also change the way we look at the world. And I, I mean, I think of, for example, a great novelist like Proust. Proust had some demonic ability to articulate nuances of human experience uh, in such refined and accurately perceptive ways that I don't think anyone else ever had been able to capture these things in language. And as you're reading it, you, you immediately register, uh, yes, you say to yourself, yes, he's got it. That's exactly what happens. But no one has ever said this before. And how wonderful it is to have words for a common experience that was outside of language until the writer was able to articulate it. These are the wonders of books. Yeah, I agree. It's, and it's, it's why it's challenging if you love a book. Like, I love every actor and everybody involved in Music of Chance, the movie. But it is so far from the novel yes. that it lost me. I remember sitting in the movie theater, seeing it opening night, not yet knowing I was going to be a filmmaker. What year did it come out? Do you remember? I don't remember what 92 year 92 maybe. Something. Right. So four years before I started writing my first script. Mm -hmm. and uh, But I remember sitting in the movie theater, not understanding why it didn't make me feel 
what you made me feel when I read the book. And it was one of those, you know, it started that question. It just started that questioning process for me. It was like all the things I loved about the book were kind of there, but they were kind of deconstructed and misplaced. They weren't in the, the wall was there, but it wasn't the wall that you told me about. You know, it, it just wasn't quite the experience of the book. And it's, it's, you know, as someone who's then adapted things for the, for the, for the screen, it's, it's, um, though smoke is entirely successful. Somehow smoke is completely movie. successful. Yeah. But smoke was conceived as a movie. Yes. Uh, music of chance was a adaptation of a novel. It's not a terrible movie at all, but it's not, it, it doesn't, it, I, I agree. It doesn't convey what's in the book. It can't, it can't. Because you see, when you read a book, everyone reads his or her own book. It's, yeah. it's, it's a private experience. The wall you imagine is not the wall your wife maybe imagines when she reads it or, or anybody else on the block where you live, if, if assuming any of those people <laughs> ever read the book. Um, uh, no, no, it's a personal experience because what we bring to a book, and this is not just novels, but any book, is our own lives, our own past, our own way of looking at the world, uh, our own prejudices, our own loves and dislikes. And um, we're going to read, read that book through the lens of our own selves and come up with something different from the way the next person will read it. Sure. And, and I understand what you mean. I, I, I use this expression often. I say, like, as I've gotten older, sometimes you know, reading fiction is so discomforting and is so disturbing because it forces you to grapple with stuff. When you're younger, you know, great novels are often about like, you know, death and then also possibility. And as you get older, the possibility recedes and the death is more present. So, yeah. you know, it makes reading novels sometimes like just a, um, a more disturbing experience than when you're young. Yet, I can go back and read Camus uh, and still as disturbing and fucked up as it is, there is a comfort in someone having gone into that uncharted land ahead of me and reported back. And there is something, even when it's disturbing for me, and look, you use the metaphor of the books as furniture. And so there is also it something- a metaphor, it was a- I know, it was actual. actual. Yes, there were yeah. actual furniture. No, he didn't have any furniture. And, and he so he used the books. And he turned them into chairs and uh, you know the support for his mattress and-, yes. and yeah. But but you chose uh, you chose to use books and that and 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 so have to also understand the sturdy uh, holding effect that a book can have. There's something very know. comical about it too. I mean, there's yeah, it's hilarious. Yeah. Well, then selling the books is the hilarious. I mean, yeah. selling the books and losing his ability to have, of course, hilarious. you're talking about about books brings us for a moment to Leviathan, which I've wanted to talk to you about, honestly, for a very long time. So um, I do think it's one of the great novels of the last 50 years. Um, and I do think it predicted a lot of the way society works. Like, you know, the thing you were just talking about, about the relationship, the intimate relationship between a writer of a book and a book, but it is an uneven relationship. And in the world now where people are projecting themselves all over social media, and I know you don't have it, but you know your 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 daughter is a great musician, yes, is very yes. good at so she's great at social media and yeah, well, uses she's, she's, 
She's a lot younger than I am. She, you know, I know. She grew up with this. I don't need it. Uh, it listen, if I had a job, um, I, I, I would, of course, need a computer and a cell phone. But I don't have a job, and I don't really find it necessary, and I prefer not to be so reachable. That's all. Um, it makes complete sense to me. But, yeah. but what, I'm, what I'm getting to is that Leviathan deals with this imbalance that now exists all over the place. For instance, there are definitely people who watch, let's say, your daughter's videos who believe they know her because they know this version of her. But that doesn't mean that they know her. It's in no. a relationship with an imbalance built into it, but a seemingly intimate relationship nonetheless. And like you're talking about that a lot throughout Leviathan. And I'm, uh, I'm wondering in all the years since, you know, there are all these sort of, and obviously uh, the way you talk about the Statue of Liberty, the way you talk about you know, what happens to the Statue of Liberty over and over again in the book, uh, the mini Statues of Liberty, and uh, what notions of like freedom and speech and uh, what is uh, acceptable to hide and keep to yourself and what isn't. I mean, throughout that book are all questions about all this stuff and about the import of the written word. And uh, one, do you think the book's gotten its due? Do you care about that? And two... Do you see it as separate and removed from other books you've written? Uh, uh, do you see it as particularly significant in the, in the canon of, of stuff uh, you've written? Uh, no, I, I, not really. I mean, I think of it as just part of my ongoing work. I think um, the only thing I can say is that book followed the music of chance. And I think Leviathan was the first novel I wrote in which things began to open up. Yeah. Uh, uh, my my uh, previous five or six novels had, had all been um, about solitary characters. Um, and uh, in Leviathan, you have networks of people. I mean, it's the, first, it's the first novel in which people sit down to a dinner party, for example, that there's some semblance of social life going on uh, and that the um, society in which the characters live is quite large and complex and intersecting in different ways. So that that was a, I don't know if it's a step forward or step backward or a step to the side. It's just, it was different. It was somehow enlarging the canvas of, of what I, I, I did. Um, uh, I don't really, I don't know. It was a very, very hard book to write. I was most miserable as I was writing it. And every paragraph was a uh, just a real challenge to me. Um, and other books have been, you know, less uh, excruciating. They're all hard. But I mean, th that book was really excruciating to write. Um, I don't know why. Um, and um, yeah, what and do you think it is about that book that that that? Well, I mean, in a way, you, yes, you, it was a book in which, as you say, you it, you opened up in, in all the way it it it, it opened the the canvas. Uh, and yeah, you've written, I mean, certainly, um, you know, in, in the country of last things and in all your work, you were aware of the society in which we were living. You were aware oh, yes. of yes. all that stuff. But, but Leviathan is a particular, Leviathan is a particularly, is a piece that is particularly concerned, it seems to me, 
with the society in which we live, what we say we are versus what we are, and um, you know how to exist as an artist. In the, I, I take in the I world. take on the question of America. I mean, in a, yes. in a forthright way, the epigraph is from Emerson. Every actual state is corrupt, which is a deep, a deep, a deep comment, and. Um, it's about the um, Reagan years, essentially. I mean, what happened to the people of my generation, the 60s generation, as the 80s began? And um, Benjamin Sachs, the, uh, uh, I suppose, the central character, even though he's not the narrator, is, is, is a, a prime example of that. It's interesting, though. You see, how my mind works is that in that book, as you know, uh, Sachs falls off a fire escape and falls three stories to the ground. His fall is broken by a clothesline and he's not killed. He's banged up seriously, but not, not fatally and not permanently. And that fall, that, that image of a man falling through the air really was so haunting to me that I got the idea after I finished that novel to write Leviathan, which is a book about a boy who can levitate. And I'm telling you- You mean Mr. Vertigo. You decided to write Mr. Vertigo. Yes, yeah. Mr. Vertigo. He's, yes. Yes. Yeah, that's what I meant. Uh, Mr. Vertigo, which is about a boy who levitates. So it's it's as if one thing is giving birth to the other by, by contradicting what I had written before. And I think this is another thing that is present in my work is that I'm always trying to unwrite what I've done in the past and start again. Um, each book is a new challenge. Each book, I've, ne I've never written this book before. I have to teach myself how to do it as I'm doing it. Each book has its own music, its own tone, uh, its own voice. And I have to discover that. And, and um, that's, that's the real spiritual work that goes into, into writing. Um, but I, I guess uh, any artist with a long life in, in any particular art is always in dialogue with himself or herself yes. to go forward. And, and this, this creates some kind of uh, dynamism that, that allows you to, to make the next step. I mean, you can't just stay in place all the time. You want to keep moving and finding new ways of doing it. Um, but it's not arbitrary. You don't sit down and say, ah, I'm going to write a book about this or that. It comes organically uh, and, uh, and out of the unconscious rather than, you know, some kind of mani manipulative uh, 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 formulation that will give you a formula to, to, to create. Uh, no, of, uh, of, of, of course. Uh, but are yeah. you aware that you're sitting down? I mean, you said it, that you were writing a book about America. And did well, you start to note, but did you start to note? Yes, but this is what I was going to say. Did you start to note, though? So, but reading it, receiving that book, it was so clear what you were writing about. And uh, I, I can't overstate its impact. And then I can't overstate when 9-11 happened and various other events. You say you're writing about Reagan, but also Reagan presaged the George W. Bush era. And like the echoes of that book, I think, and of the world you were noticing. And I wonder if it was just that you were particularly plugged in in that moment. Some of the thing you were talking about where you have to be in a posture of picking up on these vibrations. 
I mean, I wonder, I wonder if as those events were happening, meaning symbols of America getting destroyed, uh, and then people using that as an, you know, the jingoist, jingoistic parts of uh, what happened afterwards. I, I guess I'm wondering if you made note of any of that as like, man, I fucking saw this coming. I don't know. I I I don't know. I I I I I just can't answer that. I I I I didn't it's think fair. of it that way. Um, I I don't know. Uh, I mean, I think in a funny way, the previous book, The Music of Chance, was my most political book, in that it's a parable, a fairy tale about power. I mean, these yeah. these men are entrapped in this in this uh, meadow, you know, building a wall. I mean, they're yeah. like political prisoners. And, and, and the arbitrary powers that, you know, dictate what happens to them. So it's a book about power, political power, ultimately, or in one, one way, whereas um, Leviathan is much less um, hidden. It's, everything is out in the open in this book. Um, and um, I think the other, another book of mine, more recent book, uh, which I, I really tried to do something completely new is in Sunset Park, which I think came out in 2010. This was uh, a book that came out of the economic crisis of 2008, the collapse of of the economy. And um, I, for once, I said, I'm writing a book now that's set wholly in the present, the present that we're living right now. Um, And the book is all written in the present tense. And it's about young people, you know, suffering from the sudden uh, chaos around them. And they become uh, squatters in an abandoned house in Brooklyn. Um, And, uh, you know, it starts with, um, you know, all those foreclosures, these horrible stories of people losing their houses uh, to banks, Um, the the subprime mortgage scandal. and the, the, the one of the principal characters, Miles Heller, is is a trash out worker in Florida, you know, cleaning out the debris left behind by the evicted uh, homeowners. Um, and it's you know it's such a desolate uh, uh, end story of you know the the perils and horrors of capitalism. Um, and I, I I wanted to try to capture this. Um, in, in a vivid present tense form. Um, so, yeah. Um, and, and yeah, that was a sort of a, well, let's, let's talk about uh, liberty and free speech for a second and reactions to sort of things because politics directly, you know, I loved the part of Burning Boy about Crane getting in trouble, Crane and Townsley, they're both getting in trouble for uh, the piece Crane wrote about a guy running for VP, but who was also uh, uh, in, owned the paper that he was. No, no, it's the New York, New York Tribune. No, yeah. no, he didn't write a story about him. He wrote a story about a, a nativist, uh, super pro-American labor organization, yes, the yes. Mechanics, who staged a march in Asbury Park. And Crane wrote a kind of mocking article which was more about the rich people watching than about the, the marchers themselves. But the marchers took offense 
And the 1892 presidential campaign was underway. There was this, and there was this bit you'd say, yeah, this union, yeah. White, uh, big White worker law. fight. Well, you know, this was a time of tremendous uh, labor tensions in the United States. Now, there was the Homestead Strike in 92 when um, Frick, Henry Clay Frick, the man who owned the building that has all the beautiful paintings in it in New York City, who worked for Carnegie, and um, the, the workers went out on strike because they, they uh, refused to recognize the union. And um, Frick hired Pinkerton agents to come in and just shoot down and murder these, these, these strikers. I mean, there were many strikes of that intensity at, at, at the time. So anyway, they said, ah, the Tribune is anti-labor. And um, I think maybe it might have had a small effect on the election. I mean, um, uh, Reed later claimed that uh, uh, and, and Grover Cleveland, who lost, he was running for president, the re-election, said, Stephen Crane lost me the election. I think he was joking, though. I don't think he really did. But it had an effect. There's no question. It created a stir. Crane got fired. He got booted out of the Tribune, which, interestingly enough, for the rest of Crane's life, whenever they reviewed one of his books, they trashed it. I mean, they trashed well, yeah, you, you even mentioned that the first book, Maggie, was ignored by all the every, no one yes. wrote about it except them just to shit on him. Well, he was self-published. Um, uh, it was yeah. the book was self-published, and uh, so no one reviewed it. It was reprinted a few years later, and that's when the Tribune uh, attacked it. Um, but anyway, it's all very interesting. I mean, the Crane story. You've got Teddy Roosevelt involved. He was the police commissioner of New York at the time. You have William Randolph Hearst, who was just getting off the ground with the with the uh, the New York Journal. The wars with Pulitzer, the yellow journalism wars, it was a fascinating. Well, and, and also, uh, you know, the you talk about Crane's both progressive and regressive points of view uh, regarding race and women and all that stuff. And uh, in, you know, toward the end of his life, where he was living, where he he, he went, the relationships that, that he had. But on this issue of writing stuff that gets you in trouble which is he did a number of times. He was just going to write what he wanted to write. I mean, and it's interesting because you read the book and, and part of my, my head is like, well, you know, people now, there are far, you know, there are fewer restrictions. On, on the other hand, the world is so ready to call you to account no matter what you write now, on, on the other hand, meaning you can, you can get published, but you can immediately step on a lot of different sort of uh, wires. So uh, did any of that resonate for you in, in terms of, you know, how you feel about people writing what they're sort of either implicitly or explicitly told not to write? Yeah, well, you see, uh, fortunately in America, uh, it's not so bad. I mean, even the books that are banned in schools uh, throughout certain right-wing districts, are not banned in the country. You can get these books if you want them. They're available. What really uh, has, has preoccupied me, and I've been involved in these things, are what's happening abroad in other countries. Uh, I mean, the number of Turkish writers in prison, for example, what the Chinese did to Lu Xiaobo, the Nobel Prize winner who died in prison 
um, yes. uh, one, one story after another. And I, I, I mean, for a long time, I was actively involved in the Freedom to Write program at Penn, you know, yeah. American Penn, yeah. uh, which, um, you know, uh, at the time was actively involved in uh, trying to save writers in trouble uh, around the world. And, um, uh, and then, there, you know, there's a horrific story of my friend Salman Rushdie and what happened to him during the fatwa. These are really serious life and death issues. Well, yeah, I've had Salman see- on the podcast. I've, I've had many yes. dinners with Salman and I've had him on the pod. Yes. And yeah, for sure. Yeah. People want to hear that so, story. They can. Yes. Yeah. So, so, but I'm just saying that um, grim as, as American life has turned out to be and dark and darker and darkest as the skies are becoming, um, we're, we're not at that point yet. Um, thank God. Um, you know, we'll see, we'll see where it's all going, but for the time being, um, I feel perfectly free to write whatever I want. On the other hand, I have been censored in both China and Iran. And this was, okay, this is really, really fascinating. I didn't know this. Tell me. Okay. In, it was Sunset Park. Sunset Park. Because one of the young people who's living in this squat in in Sunset Park in Brooklyn uh, is a graduate student trying to get her PhD, but she has a part-time job at Penn and she's working for the uh, Freedom to Write uh, Committee. And it's right at the time of the uh, Lu Xiaobo uh, uh, business. And um, so there's a, a chapter about her and what they're working on and in which the fatwa is mentioned against Salman when this, this young woman was 10 years old, she couldn't understand why anyone would want to hurt anyone for writing a book. Books are, after all, harmless. They're not bullets, you know, after all. And, and, um, and uh, so the, um, that chapter, I later learned, was completely suppressed in the Chinese edition. And then my Chinese publisher dropped me. And I got another publisher, but th- those pages were never uh, uh, published. Now in Iran, where you know they they uh, there were no publishers who had signed the international copyright agreement. So every book earlier on of mine that was published in Farsi and, and distributed in Iran was pirated. Um, huh. There were no contracts; they just did it, and God knows how they translated them and what's what's in them. Well, anyway, uh, a number of years ago, um, I finally signed on with a legitimate publisher who, who made contracts and who believed in copyright laws. Now, he was, he was under some kind of stress from the government, and he, he shuttled between Tehran and Dubai. And he would call me only from Dubai because he couldn't call from Tehran. His phone was tapped. Wow. And he said, look it's a problem with this chapter because we can't talk about the fatwa and we can't, we can't, we can't do it. And he said, this is the way Iran censors books. There are X number of forbidden words. They don't have enough censors to read the books. They put the, all the books through scanners. And if one of these words pops up, the book is banned. He said, uh, and I said, well, if that's the case, then I think let's let's just not publish the book. I, I don't want to censor myself. It's not 
It's not worth it to me. Um, yeah. He said, no, no, you don't understand. If I don't do it, somebody else is going to do it, pirate it, and it'll be horrible. Now, he said, you have to understand as well that we're not so stupid here. We know we know what's going on. And we have code words for uh, fatwa, ayatollah, rushdie. You know, they're, 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 they're code words that everyone who's going to read this book will know what they signify. That's awesome. And therefore, don't worry. You know, you're That's in That's awesome. And I said, thank you for telling me this. And of course, go ahead and use the code words. And I'm, I'm delighted, just delighted. And um, isn't that a wonderful, interesting? And oh, that's fantastic. Everything yeah. I love. Yeah. I mean, the censorship parts uh, sucks, but I love that there's, of course, there's a way. Um, there's always Samizdat, right? So there's always a way to the get the Samizdat through. Circumvent the authorities if you're clever enough. Yeah. Yeah, Samizdat, is that how you say it? Yeah, I think so. Um, Samizdat, yeah, yeah. Samizdat. So uh, as, a, as a last thing, and um, this is just textual, because the book. one of the things about the Crane book is the textual analysis is great. Uh, I don't think that I would have gotten the same things out of the stories about the baby character had I not read the book. And, um, uh, and I look forward to reading all the Crane stuff that I haven't read. Hmm. Uh, even though I, I don't think I'm not sure that I love I love him. I'm not sure that I love the work as much as you do, but I'm di you know, I'm fully diving into the work. Um, Listen, what writer, what writer could come up with a sentence like this describing the heat in Cuba in the summer? The sky was bare and blue and hurt like brass. Yeah. Hemingway. Hem, Hem could, but he under the influence of uh, also also. But one of my favorite crane sentences is the woman's boatman had a face like a floor. Now, yeah, it's fan fantastic. And there's a reason for it, but it's incredible. Anyway. Well, and you do this amazing job of, of really, you know, you quote many, many sentences. So the, what's really fun about the book is, you know, whether you're a Paul Oster fan or not, but especially if you are, is sort of understanding through the through the prism of knowing your work so well, figuring out what it is about this guy that you love so much is really was for me really in, enjoyable. But you know, you 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 talk about um, how each of these books is different. You talk about rhythm. I've I will say that the rhythm with which you write, I always felt one unfair thing. People sometimes talk about the short sentences, and yes, the New York trilogy is short sentences. But right after that. Many times you write sentences that have a lot of music in them and that are long sentences. And, and a lot of this is what I want to ask you about. I wonder if you're aware of this. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Did, no, I wonder if you're. I, uh, no, listen, there's been a progression. I've opened up. Of course. I mean, of course. Three, two, one. There are sentences that go on for two or three pages. No, no. I, 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 I devised this swirling, whirling uh, dervish-like sentence form that would propel the story forward. It's such a long book. And, yes. and these long sentences just get you from one city to another. But, really but, uh, but, but even yeah. what, I, what I was going to ask you is, you know, this is the thing I was wondering if you were aware of. I, of course, you know that you've opened up and let the sentences go longer and all that stuff. But you use dependent clauses in a way that get like all throughout your work, you use dependent clauses a lot. And uh, I've always, before I was a writer even, I noticed this rhythm, often started by the word if. You use the word if more than I think any other writer. And <laughs> I, I, wonder, I don't know if you know this about yourself, no. <laughs> but you are constantly like, um, 
uh, talking in, uh, like in Book of Illusions, uh, you're talking about the manuscript and you say, uh, if I managed to finish it, it was only because I did nothing else. You use if all the time for facts. Uh, you'll say, uh, if I mention in passing that this house is owned by Sachs's ex-wife, it is only to give one example of how tangled. And I will say that although the books are all different, it's one of the things that a Paul Oster character would figure out. Man, you start more sentences with if, and it is a way, I think, it gives a huge clue into how you look at the world, which is it's all a dependent clause. If one thing would have changed, then all of this might have changed. If I hadn't yeah. merely done this, all the rest of these things would be different. Well, thank you for this brilliant illumination, which I've never been aware of. I guess it's my thumbprint, but I'll, I'll look, maybe I'll try to, I'm writing a new book. Maybe I'll try to, uh, suppress all the sentences no. that be with if and see see what happens <laughs> i'll be i'll be heartbroken it's a there real thing it's in every no but it's a wonderful yeah. listen as you know all writers have fingerprints and i've never seen this written about and it's something i swear i noticed long before i ever wrote a word and it's yeah. part of this thing you were talking about a while ago we'll end this here which is <laughs> and I guess I would, uh, which is about trusting the rhythm that you feel, that an author uh, feels. And uh, how did you, as a last thing, how do you think you, uh, it, I guess for, for, for me, I think about meter a lot in when I'm writing, but also when I'm reading it back and rewriting. Is mm -hmm. that, do you, do you, do you stress test the work for like the rhythm working as you rewrite or does all of that happen the first pass through? Oh, no, no, no. I work and work and work on a par I work by paragraphs. That's my unit of composition, the paragraph. I can work over a paragraph six, seven, ten times in my notebook. And then when I feel it's pretty okay, I type it up and I look at it. And then I start attacking it again. And I always read my work out loud. I read it out loud to Siri. I have to hear it. And I often read it out loud to myself too. Um, no, the the music is 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 everything, uh, and how how you know you put a period, and then where do you go with the next sentence? How far do you leap? Do you you can you can you can you can say? I mean, in a novel, you know, he put down his glass on the table, and then period. Five years later, in Venice, <laughs> you know, yes. he he saw the woman who was carrying a similar glass. I, I, I don't know. And, and uh, anything, you can, you can do anything. Or you can say, he put down the glass, on the, he put the glass down on the table, uh, period. He looked at the glass and wondered if he wanted to take another sip, period. He decided he didn't want another sip and, and got up and left. Um, or, you know, any one of 10 million. And so things. you go through yeah. and you're constantly grinding on the paragraph. The paragraph yeah. is the unit. You get that right. Yeah. And then you move on to the next one. Then I move on. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I hope you keep writing paragraphs and moving on to the next one for like a I'm really trying. long I'm, I'm time, trying. Paul. Thanks for taking the time to do this. Thanks for writing Burning Boy. People should go out and uh, get this book. There's an audiobook. The way I read the book was uh, I, I, I got three copies of it. I got the hardcover. Uh, and then I take long bike rides. And so I got the audiobook, which you narrate, which is great yeah. uh, that you narrate the audiobook because uh, some of the other books have other narrators of yours and it's better when you narrate them. No, but the sure. last 10 years or so, I've been doing all my own books. Yeah. Yeah. But I went back, I went back to listen this morning on the bike. I went back to listen to Leviathan and oh. uh, 
and it's not you. And it was no, uh, no, I never did that one. No, no. Anyway, was, thank uh, you so much. Disappointing. Was, Paul Oster, thank you for this. Thank you. Uh, I'm glad. And um, yeah, everybody, you can't find Paul online. Don't even try to find him online. Um, but uh, go get his books and read them, and you can you can find me on Instagram. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you next time.